Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the program. My name is William Hemsworth. It's great to be with you all. I'm pleased to welcome our guest back in the program, Mike Aquilina. He's the Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a contributing editor for Angelus News. He's author of more than 50 books, including The Fathers of the Church and The Villains of the Early Church. He hosts the Way of the Fathers podcast for CatholicCulture.org and edits the Reclaiming, Reclaiming Catholic History series for Ave Maria Press. Mike, welcome back to the show, and how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm doing all right for a man with COVID. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. I saw that on Facebook, and I'm sure, like many others, you know, we, we all, we're all praying for you. So I uh, hope you get through it quickly. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome. So congrats on another book. And the book we're talking about today is Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. And it's a really fascinating read. Now, what made you decide to write this book, and why is it so needed today? Hmm. Well, what made me decide to write it was just a a, a, a brief encounter with a, with a dear friend of mine, uh, Pat Fagan. Uh, Pat uh, teaches at Catholic University of America. He's kind of a renowned psychologist. Um, he's done a lot of um, a lot of important work in his field. Uh, I was giving a paper at Notre Dame University, and on my, as I, after I gave the paper, I was making my way back to my, my chair, and Pat just grabbed me, and he said, you know, Mike, you should write a book on friendship and the fathers, and I just said to him, I said, I don't think there's enough material, and he shrugged, and I sat down, and I, I started to make a list of all the material that might go into such a book, and just sitting there thinking off the top of my head, I came up with a pretty substantial list. And of course, this preoccupies me then. And I go back to my hotel room and I do a little bit of Googling and looking at other sources. And I find that there's even more material. And then I get back home and into my library. And sure enough, I found still more one, you know, once I was able to dig into real books. So, um, so, you know, within two weeks of Pat saying that to me, I had, uh, I had put together a, uh, a a proposal and sent it off to a publisher and I had a book contract. All right. So that's 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 why I wrote the book. Uh, that, those are the circumstances. But um, but why Pat suggested it is another matter, and I, I think he suggested it because as a psychologist with some expertise in sociology, Pat was looking at what was going on out there and he saw the decline of friendship in our culture today. Uh, he sees the uh, 
the 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 rise of social isolation mm-hmm. and uh and all of this in spite of the fact that we have these wonderful new social media and we're even using one right now it, right. these are wonderful developments in many ways but they they have tended strangely enough to isolate us even more um so pat sees all that as a as a psychologist and uh and he uh he he sees that perhaps the um the 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 solution is to be found in the writings of the fathers and i i found out that i agree with him all right now how did piggyback on that in your introduction you discussed the growth rates in the faith during the early church even during times of persecution and you say it's a story of friendship what what do you mean by that well you know that persecution was intermittent yes Mm -hmm. but it was there it was on the books um for the first 275 years of Christianity, it's a long time. Uh, and yet, during that time, when Christianity was illegal, when it was a capital crime, uh, the church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade worldwide. Wow. 40% per decade worldwide. You think about that. It's That's amazing. astonishing growth rate. Uh, you know, we haven't been anywhere near that since then. Uh, and how, how did it happen? Because we didn't have access to any of the the media that existed then. There were no electronic media. There were no real print media, right? Everything had to be copied out by hand. That's how you got published, was your books were copied out by hand. And that was very expensive. It was very time-consuming, very laborious, and it required skilled labor. So who could afford that? Christianity didn't have access to any of the of the the public fora you know we couldn't we couldn't stand in the middle of the marketplace and preach because to do that was to expose ourselves to certain death um so how did how did the church grow uh our it wasn't our liturgy it wasn't our preaching those are private things you know you weren't allowed to attend unless you were a baptized christian no the, the church grew by means of personal friendship christians befriended the people next door people down the street, the people who worked beside them in the marketplace, and they made them want to be Christians. Uh, uh, there, there were no special programs involved. You know, today when we think of evangelization, they think, oh man, I got to get certified by, um, by the chancery or by my pastor. I, I, have, to, I have to, you know, go, go, go through a video course that's sponsored by some major apostolate, and at the end of it, get my, get my cert- certificate. Right. Um, and that's that's not the case. That's not the case today. Although I love a lot of those programs, they're not essential. Baptism is essential, and we we are called with our baptism, and we're called to to evangelize. We're 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 called to be apostles in the world. Uh, the early Christians sensed that vocation, and they lived that vocation very faithfully. And the evidence, the proof, is in the growth of the church during those centuries. And so we could start. We can take that lesson today and apply it. Start with person in front of you, right next door. You don't have to go through all these. I don't want to say obstacles and hurdles, but you yeah. can do it right where you're at. These other programs are good. I'm not denouncing them or anything, but yeah. Now, one of my heroes is Saint Irenaeus, and of course, you have a chapter about him in your book. And he's known for many things against heresies and his refutation of the Gnostics. How does the subject of God and friendship come up in his refutation of the Gnostics? <laughs> well, you know. The- the, the Gnostics really didn't buy into the idea of incarnation, right? They didn't, right. Uh, 
they didn't like the idea of the world or flesh at all. And, and, um, and the doctrine of the incarnation arrived as a scandal th to them. It was, uh, it was crazy uh, to say that, uh, that, that God, who is transcendent and infinite, um, subjected himself to human flesh, that he, he became incarnate, that he took flesh and he dwelt among us in the world to save the world because he loved the world. All of these, these ideas were scandalous to the, to the Gnostics. Um, and Irenaeus kind of reveled in them. Uh, he, uh, he was the great saint of the, of the incarnation and he was the great saint who spoke up against, uh, against Gnosticism and refuting, refuting the, uh, the many varieties of that heresy. Uh, it, the incarnation was uh, Christ's expression of friendship. It's, it's the extent to which he would go for the sake of befriending us. And, um, and there was kind of a, uh, a, a fundamental truth of, uh, of, of pagan philosophy. Aristotle said it, Cicero said it, uh, that friendship required both parties, both friends to be equal in every way, okay? You had to be equal and you had to share the same opinions and important things. Um, and, and, and Aristotle even used the, uh, the, in order to illustrate that principle, Aristotle, Aristotle said, for example, that you couldn't have a God befriending men. That's just an impossibility because of the disequality there, the inequality uh, between the parties. And yet in the incarnation, you find God seeking equality in this way with friends, with, with, his, with, his, uh, with those he had come to save. And, and, um, and, and our Lord gets to his last supper and he looks at these, this, this motley crew he had gathered around him, his, his apostles, and he says to them, you know, I don't call you slaves. I don't call you servants. I call you friends. I have called you friends. And that is a seismic event when he speaks those words. It's a beautiful moment in history. You know, Ignatius got the import of that moment. Uh, he got the import of the, uh, of the incarnation, and he expressed that in the second century. Very good. Now, sometimes with friendships, there's falling out. There's times where maybe we don't speak. And I got to your chapter on Basil of Caesarea and Gregory Nazianzen. Now, they have a very interesting story with their friendship. But what can we learn about friendship from these two great fathers? <laughs> well, lots of things. You know, uh, <laughs> equality isn't everything. <laughs> now, they were equals in many ways. They were equals in social status, for example. They came from essentially the same social class. Uh, they were equals in education. They were equals in, in their, their personal gifts. Boy, you're talking about two of the great fathers of the church, two of the greatest yeah. figures in Christian history, and they forged a friendship when they were very young. They ended up being roommates, housemates together when they were in college, when they were studying together in Athens. Um, and yet they were very different personalities. They didn't have equivalent personalities. They, they, they didn't even have complementary personalities. <laughs> they, had, they had personalities that... that um, that really uh, didn't seem to go well together in a lot of ways. Uh, Basil was a no-nonsense man of action, right? He was a great thinker. He was very smart, but he did not hesitate to act. He took decisive action, and he did what he thought was the right thing to do. 
Um, he could be forceful. Uh, and uh, he didn't have a lot of time for uh, discussion. He wasn't the Hamlet type. He wasn't going to say on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand. No, he was going to figure out what was the right thing to do and he was going to do it. Um, now, Gregory, on the other hand, was, was introspective. He liked to mull things over. He liked to think about things. He loved especially to write about things, to work them out on paper. And he was a great writer. Uh, he liked solitude. He liked to be alone. And his, his, his fondest wish was to spend his life alone writing. And yet Basil somehow persuaded him first to become ordained a priest and then to be ordained a bishop. Now, Basil saw the value of having a man of Gregory's brilliance and, and Gregory's gifts in both of those offices. And so I'm sure that he used the full force of his persuasive powers when he approached his friend. Now, Gregory, for his part, could be something of a pushover, <laughs> right? He would, he would give in. He didn't like to fight. He would give in, and then he would regret giving in, and he would be kind of uh, moody and passive aggressive for a long time afterward. And so this defined their relationship. Uh, and this, this, um, the lingering effects of, uh, of, of Gregory's resentment lasted for years. And really, they, they lasted to some degree till the end of Basil's life. Now, at the end of Basil's life, Gregory was the man they called to come out and eulogize him. And his eulogy for Basil is one of the great biographies we have from antiquity. And it really does show us more than any other document or combination of documents, the greatness of his friend Basil. But it also is an honest record of the ups and downs of their friendships, even the estrangements in their friendship and, uh, and how, how, they, how they got through those times. Uh, there's, there's, there's no sugarcoating of friendship in the works of the fathers. And, and that's, that's one thing that, um, that I tried to make clear in my book, that, that uh, you know, friendship isn't, isn't just what you find in a Hallmark card, that friendship, friendship has its ups and downs, it has its difficulties, and the fathers show us ways to work through those difficulties. Absolutely. And one thing I like about your book is the large blocks of text that you give directly from the church fathers. And then, of course, you give you, your, your writing about them as well. So it's not just your opinion. You're actually laying it out for the reader. Like, here's what they said. Here's why. So I think that's very helpful as well, because you get your perspective, and then you get it directly from the fathers, too. Yeah, my great goal in life is not to get people to read Mike Aquilina, it's to get them to read the fathers. And if I can make that easier for people, because people complain about reading ancient texts, and I get that. Yeah, I get that. It's a different world, and you need a little bit of a ramp up into it. All I see my myself as providing is a little ramp up into the fathers. Yeah, and one, one of the gifts I always give to my the people I sponsor in RCIA is the I'm going to butcher the title because I don't have it in front of me, but like the introduction to the fathers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always a book I give. So they, they in, hopefully to introduce them to reading a, a little more. <laughs> yeah. um, you also discuss one of the, uh, among many other great saints in there, St. John Christossom. And he has an interesting work called on the priesthood and you talk about the, how he says that deception among friends can be virtuous. And I know some people are like, what are you talking about? Now, obviously, it's disturbing to some, but what does that mean exactly? What is he trying to get well, at? Well, see, I think what he was trying to get at in the text 
is an ironic point. I don't think he's trying to propose what he did as a virtuous course of action. You know, a Chrysostom is a, is a, uh, is a master rhetorician. And he's, he's a master at telling a story. He's a very careful and deliberate writer. I don't think he was writing this uh, uh, in, uh, to propose it as a course of action. He did deceive one of his friends when he said, oh, yeah, you go forward to ordination. I'll go right with you, right, <laughs> in order to encourage the guy to move on. And the guy put himself forward, got himself ordained, and Chrysostom, meanwhile, had had booked, you know, he he was he he was no part of it by that point, and that the man was understandably upset. Um, his friend was upset, and uh, and um, and so Chrysostom gets a laugh out of it in the in the book. But I don't think he was proposing dishonesty as a course here. I think he was right. being ironic, uh, and I'm I'm open to being persuaded otherwise. But uh, but but I'm all for honesty and friendship, and that, and by that I mean real honesty. <laughs> Same here, but I, th- I saw that. I thought I'd ask you about it because I, th- I thought it was <laughs> yeah. kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So here in the 21st century, what can we take away and how can we apply the works of the fathers in not only friendship, but evangelization in, in today's world? Well, I think the first thing we have to learn from them is, is, uh, is the importance of friendship in evangelization. Um, when we do this, we're following the model of Jesus. And we're doing what the apostles did, because all they did was follow the model of Jesus, who said, I have called you friends. Now, if God himself has taken flesh in order to do that for us, there should be no one beyond the reach of our friendship. No one, no one at all. One of the great saints of the 20th century, St. Jose Maria Escriva, said, out of 100 people, we are interested in 100. Out of 100 people, we're interested in 100. And we should be. Because yes. people are interesting once you get to know them. The thing about the early Christians is they took the time to get to know their neighbors. They had this openness to friendship, and they befriended people who were very hostile to them. <clears throat> what we find in some of the early records is, uh, is, um, is, is a, uh, a conversion of persecutors, that the, the executioners or the guards of, uh, you know, who... Who, who were placed there to restrain the martyrs and to, and to kill them, uh, were eventually converted themselves. They were converted by the witness of the martyrs. Uh, in one of my favorite texts in this book, um, it's, it's the Octavius by Minucius Felix, what we see is two Christian friends going with a pagan friend, three colleagues. They're all three of them lawyers. They go to a resort for a holiday weekend. They spend the weekend in this, this conversation that's just the kind of conversation friends have. And by the end of the weekend, the three of them are Christian. The two Amen. had conversed their, had converted uh, their, their hostile friend to Christianity in the course of an ordinary vacation. It didn't require a special program. It didn't require them to, to, to sit him down in front of, a, in front of a, a, a laptop and make him watch videos on YouTube. No, you know, they just had a conversation with him. And they answered his basic questions. They debated him. They even let, let him come at them pretty harshly. And, uh, and they were able to roll with it. They, they, um, they were professionals. They were lawyers. They were doing what lawyers do. You know, We should all do what we do in our profession with our coworkers and gradually bring them into the fold through our friendship, just like the early fathers did. Well, amen to that. <laughs> One of the other books you wrote is The Witness of Early Christian Women. 
I don't know. It came out a few years ago, but my, my daughters are, they, they love St. Perpetua. And so I got, so so I got this book for them and my 10 year old daughter has a question. And I told her I'd ask you, I answered the question, but I told her I'd ask you too. And she's very excited. She wants to know what a church father is. (laughs) She's 10. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, I would say that the fathers uh, are, are a select group of the most important teachers in the early church. Okay, they're they're the select group. Uh, they're all they're all writers. Okay, uh, because because they're the people we know. They're the people whose um, whose witness has survived in words. Okay, um, uh, so it's um, it's a group uh, that's traditionally numbered about you know between a hundred and a hundred fifty. Uh, sometimes a little bit more, but but usually in that range. Uh, how do we decide who's a father? Well, there's no list, okay? There's no list out there. There's no canonical list. There's no process of canonization. It's kind of traditional, mm-hmm. all right? These are the names that have come down down to us. They're the, the people we look to as authorities. And generally, there are four qualities uh, that, that, um, that, that the church has looked for. One is, is um, holiness of life. Uh, the other is um, a soundness of doctrine, orthodoxy. We usually say right, right. Uh, number th- third the third is um is antiquity and they have to be from the early church so from the first 750 years thereabouts and then uh the, f- the final quality is um is uh church approval you know have they been cited as authorities within church documents in in the encyclicals of the popes or in the catechism of the catholic church and so uh, it's it's fairly easy to document those things. There, are, uh, the church usually makes exceptions for a couple of a couple of eccentric characters along the way. Uh, but but in general, it's true that the the the, the people we call fathers uh, fulfill those those categories. Um, what she may be getting at, because of the book you held up, is uh, is are there mothers of the church? And I would say yes. I would say yes without qualification. Um, you know uh, the, the 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 word uh, patres uh, uh, from which we get patristics, <laughs> uh, the study of the fathers, uh, really is designed to in- include both parents, right? It's it's uh, it's inclusive. It's an inclusive term. Uh, it's traditional to refer to certain of uh, the ancient Christian women, uh, Saint Scholastica, for example, and and um, and. Um, Oh boy, why am I blanking on? Um, uh, oh, it's all right. <laughs> uh, but uh, say it's. I'll, I'll blame COVID, okay? <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, that now this this will drive me crazy. Uh, but but there, it, it's traditional to to refer to certain of the ancient Christian women as mothers. You know, as Mother Scholastica, for example, and even in the liturgy, they're referred to as such. So I really don't have any. Um, any uh, qualms about using that term to describe uh, the ancient Christian women whose witness we have still today. They're a small number because we don't have as many writings from early Christian women as we'd like to have. Uh, but, but again, I don't have any, any um, qualms with the name, the title. Yeah. yeah. She was just curious. So I thought I'd ask the expert since I was talking to the author that, of the book that she, <laughs> that she was reading. Um, now, the book was released on May 19th by Emmaus Road. Uh, what feedback have you received, and where can our listeners uh, purchase it? Well, I was able to give a, a, an address on the subject at, um, at uh, one of Franciscan University's uh, 
uh, conferences this summer, and um, and it may have been the biggest crowd I've ever addressed at Franciscan University. Oh, wow. I think that shows the interest in the topic, that people yeah. want to hear this. This is something that resonates with them. It makes sense to them, and they want to learn from the fathers about how to carry it forward. Uh, by the end of my talk, uh, the, the Q&A session just would not come to an end. The speaker who was supposed to be in the next session showed up at the door. The escorts came to bring me out of, of the room. <laughs> and I actually continued the Q&A session outside in the hall because, um, because people just wanted to keep the conversation going. I think it's a fascinating conversation. I think there's so much to learn from the fathers. And I think we need to hear this. You know, if we're becoming more lonely, as all the studies seem to, to show us, mm -hmm. we need to fix this. This is an indictment of Christians. If people are lonely today, then we're not doing our job. Jesus yes. said, I have called you friends. We're failing because we're not following after his model and making other people feel that they're beloved with this special love of friendship. We need to learn it from our ancestors because they did it well. They did it so well that the church grew at that rate of 40% per decade. All right. Well, one last question. You've been involved with the St. Paul Center since its founding. Yes. Um, and you have an anniversary event coming up. Did you want to share with the listeners about it? Yeah. You know, we'll be marking our 20th anniversary, which is pretty significant because, uh, because it started, um, you know, with just me and Scott and Kimberly, Scott's wife, uh, having conversations about, you know, what would be the best thing to do with that at that point. And, uh, and, and I still remember those conversations vividly as if they were yesterday. And now it's 20 years. It's, it's just so hard to believe uh, that that time has gone by and that the center has the footprint that it has today and is making the difference that, uh, that you know, that we dreamed about way back then. I don't know that we thought we would live to see that kind of growth, but we did dream about it. <laughs> and here it is doing great things. So everyone, everyone check out, go to the website, stpaulcenter.com. There's all, lots of free resources there. Mike, I thank you so much for your time today. Um, check out the book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. You can get it wherever books are sold. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. All right. God bless you. This is Kevin O'Brien of EWTN's Theater of the Word. I'm excited also to teach middle school and high school literature, speech, and drama with homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. Your student can meet with me online for a live, interactive class. Whether you take apologetics with John Martinoni or grade school with Jackie De La Viaga, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, online Catholic learning for your homeschooling family is available for you.